Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. And today I'm pleased to have the authors and creators of two of the leading indexes in the world on policies and policy uh, reforms. And at a time of economic crisis around the world, these indexes are more important uh, than ever. Uh, because uh, during times of crises, uh, there's a lot of... Uh, political opportunism and uh, on certain times give rise to uh, s statements and policies that uh, are fanciful and maybe not consistent uh, with the facts, statements that are not consistent with uh, on-the-ground facts. That's why it's so important uh, to have these two indexes and the contributions uh, that they make is precisely to measure what's going on in the world and to have a good idea of of the reality on the ground. It's, it's possible to get an objective measure of uh, actual policies on the ground and policy uh, changes. And there's nothing worse than uh, basing perceptions or uh, policy changes on uh, something you know very little about or may be completely wrong about. Uh, and both of these indexes provide uh, that kind of information. And not just for the current year or the past year, but over a period of time, say the last five to 30-some years. And uh, this makes it very useful to draw all sorts of conclusions about the relationship uh, between certain sets of policies and uh, certain outcomes over a long period of, of time so that we can be more confident about that uh, relationship. And uh, both of these studies have given rise to a whole set of uh, research on the uh, the relationship between policies and growth, human development indicators, political outcomes, uh, and so on. And the good news is that uh, these policies uh, are not in the main being reversed around the world. The Venezuelas and the Bolivias are still exceptions to the general trend of economic policy reform, despite uh, what we constantly hear uh, in the news about uh, bad uh, uh, policies and, and backtracking. Uh, how well this research uh, is understood can also have an impact during the current uh, policy environment, during the current policy debate. Uh, and if it's uh, more well understood, I think that we stand a better chance of getting better policies uh, during a time when politicians and uh, entire populations feel uncertain about the future. So let's begin with our, with our speakers so that they can uh, explain to you what it is that they've found in their latest research. Our first speaker will be uh, Bob Lawson. Bob Lawson is the co-author of the Economic Freedom of the World Report. He's been the co-author with James Gwartney from the very beginning. He's a professor in the Department of Finance at Auburn University, and he is also the co-director of the Center for International Finance and Global Competitiveness and the director of the Economic Freedom Initiative in the same uh, place. He will uh, begin uh, the presentation, and he'll be followed by uh, Jim Guartney, and then we'll have some, some uh, additional presentation from uh, Simeon Janko. So please help me welcome Bob Lawson. Thank you, uh, Ian. Uh, this is my fourth day in the nation's capital. The great thing about coming to Washington is leaving Washington and doing that this afternoon. <laughs> I always feel dirty in this town. I don't know why. 
and politicians. Mm -hmm. um, so the game plan uh, for me this morning is, or this afternoon, I should say, is to talk uh, for just a few minutes about the Economic Freedom of the World Project, uh, how we do it, um, and discuss just very briefly some of the most recent uh, numerical ratings and rankings. And then I'll turn it over to Jim, um, who will talk about some of the things we've learned over the last decade related to the Economic Freedom of the World Project. Uh, the research that's, that we have done and others have done uh, in the last few years has been exciting, and we are at the point where we can start to, to make some conclusions, and uh, we think we know some things about the world because of the index that we perhaps didn't know or didn't know as, as certainly uh, a decade or so ago. Hey, this works. So uh, what the Economic Freedom of the World Project is is a – uh, data collection exercise where uh, Jim and I collect uh, data on, in the most recent version, 141 countries. There's 42 individual pieces of, of data, 42 components. They come from a multitude of sources like the World Bank and the IMF. Professor Dijankov, uh, in fact, uh, provides us with, I think, eight of the 42 components. Uh, we're very grateful and indebted to his work for that. Um, and it's important to sort of think about the, the methodology here and, and because some people ask, uh, will criticize us, well, how come you have our country so high? It's like, well, I don't have your country too high. The 42 components have your country too high or too low. Um, Jim and I don't sit in our offices in Tallahassee or in Auburn, Alabama, uh, making numbers up. We simply collect numbers and report them. Um, all the numbers are in the index are on a zero to 10 scale. 10 is indicative of, of more economic liberalism or economic freedom or less state control. I'll talk about some of the components briefly, but, but only briefly. And, again, all the data are external to, to the report. Uh, we we uh, are, are adamant that uh, we don't make up our own data. So that's sort of the methodological rules. Um, and then the, the data themselves are collected into different areas, different sort of content areas. Uh, the first area is size of government. It's essentially a fiscal size. We, we think uh, uh, economically free places have lower taxes. Uh, and less government spending. We include here things like measures of government uh, uh, consumption expenditures, marginal tax rates, uh, things of that sort. The second area is property rights and, and, and legal, uh, the legal system. How secure are people in their property rights? How efficient and effective is the uh, judicial system, which is important for our arbitrating disputes and, and settling contracts uh, disputes and things of that sort? Uh, the third area is access to sound money, essentially how secure are you and your property to, your, to, to the cash in your wallet or your bank account? Uh, are you at risk from uh, an inflationary uh, tax or inflationary expropriation? This is an area that thankfully, with very few exceptions in the world, we don't have too many problems with uh, now, uh, Zimbabwe, of course, notwithstanding. But uh, in the index earlier in the years, in the 70s and, and 80s, uh, of course, there were many, many countries, including the United States to a certain extent, that had uh, certain risks associated with, uh, with uh, inflation and, and unstable monetary environments. The fourth area is freedom to trade internationally. This is tariffs and quotas, also capital controls, various aspects of, of, um, of international uh, exchange control. And the last one is a big area on regulation of credit markets, uh, things like interest rate controls, regulation of labor markets like minimum wages or hiring and firing regulations, uh, uh, occupational licensing rules, uh, measures for that. 
And then business, general business regulations like price controls, uh, restrictions on opening in a business, um, and, and things like that. So all of these, these 42 component parts are put into one of these five areas where it sort of logically makes sense for them to be. And we essentially, in a very low-tech fashion, average them all up uh, to get uh, an overall number. So all the numbers are 0 to 10s. We average them all up, and we end up with a number that's a 0 to 10. Uh, in order to get a good number, as you... Um, might imagine, generally speaking, if you keep taxes and spending relatively low, not zero, no country zero, if you uh, protect property rights and have a, uh, a fair and effective system of rule of law, if you have stable money and prices, and if you have a relatively free trade and relatively low regulations, you'll do pretty well on the index. Uh, to the extent you deviate, you'll, you'll, get, you'll go down. Uh, so that's the sort of overall idea of the index. Uh, in terms of some, some results, these are the most recent results, which were released in the 2008 report, which uh, effect actually came out in September. Um, Jim and I are a little bit like physicists. Uh, we are, everything is two light years away. Um, this is the, even though this was came out in 2008, the data for all intents and purposes reflect 2006 because it takes about that long, for us at least, to, to get all of these various places to report their data and get it filtered through IMF and World Bank bureaucracies, and then reported on CDs and, and on the internet for us to collect it. So, uh, everyone, anyone who says that they have the current situation data, they're lying. I mean, the reality is all the data are two years old. I mean, at, at best, uh, two years old, sometimes worse. Um, and that's an important point because uh, you know nothing we have right now in the index will reflect you know the most current crisis or the policy responses to the crisis. I have some opinions as to what the current policy responses will do to the index for the United States, but perhaps we'll leave that for question and answer. So anyway, Hong Kong is number one, always has been number one, and you didn't need this study to know that. Um, Singapore is number two and pretty much always has been as well. Great places to operate your economic life freely. It is important to note that this is an index of economic freedom in a somewhat narrow sense and omits measures of the more uh, of a more political or civil liberty nature. There are other indices out there that adequately cover those things. So a country like Singapore illustrates this. It does very well in our index, but relatively poorly on some of the civil liberties indexes and so on. Um, most countries, however, that score well on our index score well on the measures of civil liberties and democracy and so on. But there are a few oddball sorts of examples like Singapore where they have a high level on one but a relatively low level on the other. And that's the sort of research topic that I'm personally interested in is trying to explain the countries that have uh, sort of inconsistent uh, uh, policy environments and economics re relative to their, to their political or civil uh, areas. Um, the United States has fallen to eighth in our index. And um, if, you would, if you fell a point or if you fall a, a notch or two, it's pretty much just st statistical noise. But I'm somewhat confident that the United States rankings have, uh, in a very real sense, fallen since 2000, uh, in, in the year 2000, the United States and our index was rated second uh, in the world, and we're now eighth. Uh, almost all, if there's a rule, you're not supposed to go backward in PowerPoints, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, it, almost all of the dec decrease in the United States uh, overall ranking is reflecting the second area, uh, which is legal and property rights uh, environment. We have three different sources and seven different components, and all seven from all three sources the United States numbers are going downward in the last uh, half a dozen years. 
Um, those are primarily survey-based in their original, uh, you know, um, survey. Actually, a couple of them are, are, are sort of case study-based. But uh, for whatever reason, and it's not always easy to tell, there is, I think, uh, the data tell us anyway that there's a sense of unease about the property rights security uh, system. We have some uh, hallway talk about whether that's the war on terrorism or the Kilo decision or any other, another half a dozen other things that might pop into your mind. Honestly, I don't know, but I do think that there is a sort of a sense that uh, our property rights and legal system in this country is um, not, uh, not where it was uh, just, uh, say, a decade ago. So that's an area of concern. Uh, in terms of some of the other top ten, this is the top ten list, by the way. So uh, Chile is the highest-rated Latin American country. It has been for some time, but this is the first year in which they cracked the top ten. Um, Estonia is, I think, 11th or perhaps 12th, so they're just off of this list, but uh, they're also they're the highest-rated uh, transition former East Bloc, uh, former Soviet Bloc country. So uh, they're the they're the leaders of the, among among the transition countries. This is just a quick slide showing some of the bigger, uh, larger nations. There's 141, so if I put all 141 up here, no one could read any of the names or anything. Uh, I believe there's reports outside. You can look at individual countries of interest, but these are the ones that are big and you know, Brazil, the 100 million, you know, population countries and so on, or countries we care about for various reasons. Um, and uh, just to highlight a couple of examples, India is now moving up somewhat um, steadily. Now it ranks 77th, and they were much, much lower than that in the earlier period. Uh, China still gets a fairly low rating from us. Um, our methodology is one number for one country, and China is a very strange country now. It has about 300 million people who live in a modern, market-oriented, stable economy, and they got about 800 million people that still live in a centrally planned communist environment. And so I think, I think our number, which is still very low, kind of reflects the average person, but it's, they, they have a lot of variation inside of China that is very difficult for us to, to sort of capture. Um, so, um, yeah, yes, China is reforming very, very rapidly, and it's, it's tremendous, and their growth is, is, has, over the last few years, has been fantastic, but it's been very spotty in those few places where those reforms have taken place. Overall, I still think China has got a lot to go. Uh, Venezuela and Zimbabwe come in last, uh, and that hasn't always been the case. Uh, Ten years ago, uh, Zimbabwe would have been considered a relatively high-functioning African country. Um, and Venezuela, 20 or 30 years ago, would have been perhaps the highest-functioning Latin American economy, perhaps the most liberal market economy, and arguably maybe next to Costa Rica, the most liberal political environment. And uh, Venezuela and Zimbabwe both have, have tailspinned uh, downward, both politically in terms of freedom, but also um, in terms of the economic uh, freedoms that they, the people there enjoy. Um, since it's too hard, hard to put a list of 141 countries out there, I do like to put up the map that we have. Uh, it's color-coded. Blue is good. Green is second good. Uh, orange and yellow are sort of just below average, and the reds are, are uh, very bad. This is not uh, unlike, uh, I don't know if you Republican-Democrat thing, our red and blue, I don't know. Um, to me, red has always been bad from the old Soviet days, remember? So we use red for bad. And you can get a sort of a sense just that with your eyeballs uh, where the patterns go around the world. You can see how red Africa is, um, how, how unfree the bulk of Africa is, with the exception of the southern tip, which does reasonably well. Um, you can see Chile standing out in blue and Argentina next door 
uh, in red. I mean, the, the contrast between those countries is very vivid on the map. Uh, and it's also very vivid on terms of the economic performance of the countries, if you know about them. Um, there are some fast reformers that you can pick out here and there. And I think uh, Simone uh, will talk a bit about the reform process. Uh, in fact, the first time we met was just a few months ago in, in Georgia, the country during the war. How cool is that? We were there during the war. Um, and that blue right there is Georgia, and we, we score them very high, and, and as does their report. And it's one of the fastest, most recently anyway, the one of the fastest reformers. They have a lot of threats, of course, with the situation with Russia, but uh, it's one of the countries that we pick up as being a, a fast reformer. So uh, with that, I'm going to I think I turn it back to Ian for to introduce Jim. Thanks, Bob. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Jim Gortney. Jim is uh, the other co-author, the main uh, co-author of the Economic Freedom of the World Report. He's also uh, a Cato adjunct scholar and uh, has been a, uh, a author of leading a leading textbook in the United States and uh, a professor at uh, Florida State. Uh, university, where he also heads up a big project on promoting the ideas of of uh, free market economics around the country and around the world. Please help me welcome Jim Gourney. Okay, I got it. Thank you, Ian. It's always a pleasure to be at the uh, Cato Institute. Bob made some kind of comment about how he felt uncomfortable being in Washington, D.C., well, if that's true, I certainly feel comfortable being at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. That it's also a pleasure to be on the platform with Simeon Jankoff, uh, that his work, and particularly the, the Doing Business In project, is one of the projects that has been most constructive to us in terms of developing, as Bob outlined, a measure of the quality of institutions and the the uh, relationship between those institutions and uh, uh, freedom of exchange, economic freedom more generally, and that uh, when we started out on this project, and it continues to this day, that our uh, objective is to develop as objective as possible measure of institutional quality and the consistency of those uh, institutions with economic freedom. So the Doing Business Project has been very helpful to us as that project has developed, and we have integrated a number of the components into the Economic Freedom of the World Index. And I want to get on with uh, my presentation because I want to leave plenty of time. For, I want to leave, uh, make sure I leave adequate time for, for Simeon because I'm interested in his presentation as well as my own. That essentially my focus is going to be to look at some of the key things that I think we've learned as a result of the Economic Freedom of the World Project, and particularly with regard to uh, investment and the productivity of that investment, and then with regard to uh, growth, and finally with regard to looking at the relationship between institutional quality and uh, uh, per capita GDP or income levels. So let's start off thinking a little bit about the relationship between uh, uh, institutions, economic freedom, and, and investment. One of the things that, that we have learned is that countries that have institutions that are more consistent with economic freedom tend to have higher overall investment rates, but they particularly tend to have higher private investment rates. 
uh, and I think if, probably the slide is up there now, showing the relationship between countries that are most free, indicating economic freedom, summary indexes of seven and above, the middle category of five to seven, and then less than five. And that in terms of uh, total investment, there's a difference between the most free and the least free, uh, around 18 to 19 for the least free and investment as a share of GDP, and around 22 to 23 for those that are uh, uh, most free. But if you look at the difference between private investment of the least free economies and the most free economies, the differential is significantly more dramatic that the least free economies, the investment rate as a share of GDP, is around uh, a little more than 11. I think maybe it's 11.2, 11.3. Uh, you guys can check me on the, on the numbers. And uh, for those that are most free, it's uh, around 18, maybe 18.6, something of that sort. So pretty substantial difference, quite substantial. And if you looked at, for example, uh, the same kind of a breakdown, but looked at foreign direct investment, and one reason why foreign direct investment is so important is it's almost all private, and it reflects the decisions of private entrepreneurs with regard to where they're going to locate their, their business activity. And again, you find uh, the same kind of pattern, that the countries with little economic freedom have significantly lower ratio of foreign direct investment as a share of GDP to the countries that are more free. One reason why this is true has to do with uh, openness of international trade. Openness of international trade is area four of the Economic Freedom of the World uh, Index, and that's particularly true, particularly important with regard to deciding where you're going to locate a business and whether this is a good location to undertake investment. I uh, hit some keys up here. I did, hope okay. I, didn't, I didn't mess it up, Bob. Okay. Uh, that uh, if you are going to locate a, a business in a country, that you need to have openness with regard to purchasing inputs uh, and purchasing them from often outside of the country, that is to say importing them, and uh, relatively free with regard to your exporting of your product as well. So when we look at... Again, private investment as a share of GDP, the countries that are most open with regard to their rating in Area 4, for example, they have investment rates of in the 18, whereas those that are in the middle group are more like 14 or 15 uh, percent of GDP and the uh, least free group down in the 11 category again. Sizable difference, the importance of openness. If, in fact, you're an open economy, that you tend to have higher – is associated with higher investment rates. You also – economic freedom affects not only the, the uh, uh, investment rate, but the productivity of that investment. And when you – here we've looked – broken this out by, again, categories that – are uh, less than five in terms of their summary economic freedom rating, five to seven, and then seven and above, and look to see how a percentage point change in investment, private investment as a share of GDP, affected uh, the growth rate of the economy. And what we find is countries with more economic freedom that a percentage point increase results in a larger increase in long-run growth. These are basically growth rates between 80 and 2,000 and investment rates during that, that same period. And so that you find that 
a percentage point increase in investment as a share of GDP in the most free economies increases GDP long-term growth by about a third of a, of a percentage point. I think it's 0.33. The middle group, it's around 0.27, and the bottom group, around 0.19. We've actually updated these data on through 2005, and you find this same kind of pattern is present. So not only do you have an increase in investment rate, higher investment, but you also have greater productivity of that investment. Now, of course, it would not be what one would expect then is this higher investment rate and higher uh, productivity investment is going to translate to more rapid growth rates, and that we find that that is precisely the case. And we looked at the relationship between the initial uh, level of economic freedom and then the change in economic freedom during the 80s and the change in economic freedom during the 90s and looked to see how that was related to uh, changes in economic growth. And one could actually break this into a direct effect that basically picks up the productivity impact of economic freedom and a total effect that picks up both that direct effect plus this indirect effect operating through investment. And when you do that, you find that the direct effect that the initial level of economic freedom increases long-term growth by about 1% and that uh, one percentage point, and that the change during the initial decade or initial period affects long-term growth by another percent, another, but actually it's about 1.2, 1.3, and that uh, you... Uh, uh, then when you look at the total effect, when you consider both the impact of uh, higher productivity and the higher rate of investment, that it pushes those numbers up to the initial level around 1.5 and the change around 1.9. And the change during the most recent decade is lesser. Of course, it has less time to affect long-term growth because we're looking at growth here over the uh, two-decade period. So uh, unsurprisingly, you would expect that figure to be uh, somewhat uh, less, and that is, as a matter of fact, what it is. But uh, we've also looked at this data for LDCs rather than for all countries, and the pattern is actually even somewhat stronger in terms of the impact of a change in economic freedom in LDCs uh, relative to all countries. We've broken this out looking at different time periods. Rather than 1980 to 2000, looked at 1980 to 2005 and 1990 to 2005, and you get the same kind of pattern, that increases in economic freedom are associated with higher uh, rates of growth and that changes in economic freedom also exert a positive impact on growth. Now, of course, if you uh, are growing more rapidly over extended periods of time, long-term growth, it is going to result in higher uh, per cap levels of per capita GDP. And therefore, unsurprisingly, when you look at uh, these figures, that uh, I think this slide probably shows the relationship between quartiles, uh, where you look at the per capita GDP, this is in 2006, and uh, of the quartile with the highest economic freedom ratings, and if I recall, it was something like 31,000. And then the next uh, quartile, about half of that, maybe 14,000. And in the next quartile, only about half of that. And then down the final quartile, uh, again, substantially smaller than the second quartile. And if you looked at the per capita GDP of the freest quartile of countries relative to the least free quartile of countries, that the difference is about eight times 
are really quite striking. And one of the things that's absolutely crucial, as we've uh, looked at these in more detail, broken out the, uh, uh, these figures, is the importance of legal structure. And by the way, when you adjust for other things we might expect to influence uh, of growth and income, uh, like such as geographic kinds of factors, locational kinds of factors, climatic types of factors, that these relationships hold, that they're not influenced by failure to uh, consider uh, those numbers, that they remain large and uh, statistically significant, quite robust uh, across alternative specifications, even with these alternative control variables in the model. But particularly important in achieving a high per capita income level is, is legal structure. This is area two. And in area two, essentially, we look at the independence of the judiciary, the, the uh, protection, security of property rights, the even-handedness of force, enforcement of contracts, the effectiveness in terms of, of for example, how quickly uh, the legal system operates with regard to enforcement of, of debt, which is one of the variables from the, the Doing Business Project. And that uh, look at this legal structure in relationship between ratings that are high in area two and those that, that, that are low in per capita income, the figures really are striking. That uh, the, here I think we got a breakdown between less than four in terms of the area two rating and then four to five and on up through five, six to seven and so on and above seven. And if you look at those who have an above set of rating in the, the legal structure area, that their income is really about 12 times that of uh, the least, uh, uh, the, the group with the least operate, operative, if you like, effective uh, legal structure area. And you've got this step right away, improvement in the legal structure leads to improvement in, in per capita income. And part of the explanation here about what's going on is... The market is a kind of a network type of commodity that as you have more people wired into it, the benefits, it's like a telephone system, if you like. More people who have a telephone, the greater the advantage of the telephone to the existing users. And if you are wired in, if you're part of this network system, that you can derive really sort of amazing benefits. Uh, it amazes me how economically that we can acquire in the high-income developed countries with uh, a quality legal system, things like, uh, you know, microwave ovens and DVD players and, uh, and uh, 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 color television sets. I mean, just for in terms of the hours necessary to work in order to acquire those, that we really can uh, acquire them uh, very economically. But that's reflecting the fact that we're gaining from expansion in the size of the market, going all the way back to to, to Adam Smith, and that we are, in fact, wired into this market network. Whereas in many parts, but in order to get the benefits of that, you have to have an operative legal system. And if you don't have an operative uh, legal system, that it, you're not deriving these benefits of gains from trade, division of labor, etc., that you're essentially restricted to trade with people in your local neighborhood or no, local village, people who you know in terms of uh, uh, enforcement of contracts through personal relationships and things of that sort. And the gains from trade, the extent of gains from trade under those circumstances are relatively meager. And as a result, your incomes remain relatively low. So one of the things that I think is of most crucial importance that comes out of this, 
uh, is the importance of having a quality legal structure. And actually, the World Bank is working on a project uh, we were talking about just before this meeting that has to do with providing a, a still more uh, objective and measure of transparency of the legal system, I think, is going to improve our measure in this area. And, and I'm excited about that. And uh, with sort of the background stressing the importance of the legal system and, and, and how we go about to acquire these quality legal systems, I think this makes a good transition into Simeon, which is, is, relates a bit to what he's going to talk about, and he may want to expand on the, the work that they have in progress in terms of even improving more our uh, uh, measure of the legal system. So I'll turn it back to Ian, who will then uh, – thank you, Ian. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much, uh, Jim. I should mention that the Economic Freedom of the World Report is a, a project of the Fraser Institute in Canada, which publishes it around the world, and that the Cato Institute is very pleased to be the co-publisher of the Economic Freedom of the World Report here in the United States. It is now uh, my pleasure to introduce uh, Simeon Jankoff. Simeon is one of the, uh, a small group of of uh, very innovative and thoughtful economists who I think are doing some of the most important work on, on policy-related economic development issues that also have had a big impact on policies around uh, the world. He is well-published in leading economic journals and is also the creator of the Doing Business uh, Report at the World Bank I believe that that uh, report by far is the World Bank's uh, leading publication. It is the most widely cited, the most widely read, the most widely purchased, and uh, generates maybe some 60 or 70 percent of all of the media attention that the World Bank gets uh, each year. So it's been a phenomenal success, not just in terms of getting the message out, but also in actually impacting policies. Simeon uh, is now the Chief Economist of the Financial and Private Sector Vice Presidency at the World Bank. That sounds like a very bureaucratic and cumbersome title, but I be believe me, it's important to, or he's doing some very important work. Please help me welcome Simeon Jankoff. Thank you very much. Um, well, I'm finding my presentation just to make the point that we were generating about half of the World Bank's media before the various uh, Wolfowitz stories <laughs> a year ago, which uh, created a lot of media themselves. So uh, we are now recovering from that. Um, so... Since uh, this is the fourth time that uh, Ian has invited me to present uh, some insights from, uh, from the Doing Business uh, project, for which I'm very uh, grateful. And since uh, hopefully some of you have been in, uh, in some of the presentations over the last three years, what I thought today is that rather than uh, present the results of the latest report, although I'll present a couple, um, I'll talk about a specific issue that as we collect more information through doing business or also through, uh, through other types of uh, analytical exercises like the one that you just heard, we can get some uh, bigger insight. And the issue that I want to discuss today and show you some, uh, some preliminary research uh, is the following. 
um, namely, does economic governance, economic reform go alongside, if you like, political reform, political governance, or do the two sometimes go in opposite directions? So uh, Bob, for example, was presenting Singapore um, uh, as an example of a country that uh, on their index, and actually on our index as well, Singapore is number one, in fact, uh, does extremely well in terms of economic freedoms. But if you look at political freedoms on the various existing indices, uh, Singapore does quite badly. So you could say that is an example of, uh, of a case where economic governance perhaps goes uh, in an opposite direction from uh, political uh, governance. Um, so we thought of saying, well, now that in doing business we've collected a number of uh, years, six years already of, um, of uh, data, very precise micro data on the reforms, uh, we can actually link it to these six years of uh, political changes, who is in government, who is not, not in government, how long people have been in government, what is the measure of democracy that uh, this particular country or economy has gotten on various existing indices, and essentially ask this simple question. Does uh, economics freedom go together with democracy, essentially, or does it go with more autocratic uh, governments? And there are two reasons to think that this, or two, two reasons that I can think of, uh, that the answer to this question is uh, is uh, quite uh, quite interesting. Now, there is some perhaps uh, more mundane, but particularly relevant uh, uh, reason in terms of the current situation of uh, unfolding financial crisis, where if you if you take the view that well, it's mostly undemocratic regimes that uh, seem to reform faster, let's say, and better on the economic uh, areas. That's nice in a way for, for the economies and perhaps for the global economy. But if there is some sort of an external shock or actually an internal political shock, you may, may argue, they can as easily reverse this reform. So basically whatever goes up quickly may go down quickly in a situation where you have autocratic regimes, basically because it takes one person or very few people to both do and then undo uh, what is uh, happening. So that's uh, one, uh, one significant reason for uh, looking at, uh, at this uh, issue. To some extent, the second, uh, the second uh, important question of, uh, of, uh, of asking this, uh, how does economic reform go with uh, democracy or not democracy, is just to think whether things come in groups, so whether what we consider good things uh, uh, come in, uh, in pairs, if you like, or whether you can have some, uh, some systems over significant periods of, uh, of time that can improve in one level, but do not improve um, on uh, something else. And in that regard, I remember actually the first year that the Doing Business Report uh, uh, started, this is seven years ago, uh, Pakistan was actually a country that was reforming quite fast. Uh, and in that point, and until now actually, when I work on a country, I always ask the question, why are you reforming now and not three years ago or three years from now? So what is it really getting you to reform exactly now? And I vividly remember the answer that I got from uh, informally from some Pakistani officials that said, well, we want some international recognition. At that point, this was, that was a relatively new uh, government, so we want some international recognition. And since we cannot get it on the political side, we might as well get it on the economic side. So roughly speaking, we're re reforming the economy, not necessarily because we think that reforming the economy is a good thing, but because it's going to get us some appreciation, let's say, uh, abroad. And in a way, that's bothered me for the last seven years. If, uh, if there are a number of countries that are doing it 
I mean, regardless of the reason, it's a good thing to uh, to improve on these indicators, as you've just uh, seen from the previous presentation. But it's nice to know what, what drives uh, people. So with that relatively long introduction in mind, uh, let me go through some... Um, some uh, very quick slides that would be showing the last five years of data, or six really, because this is changes, and trying to answer this, uh, this question just in pictures. I'm not showing you the regressions behind, uh, uh, behind uh, them. So using doing business reform, and doing business is a much narrower exercise than the exercise that you just saw. So if you like, the exercise that you just saw has five fairly broad sets of indicators. Uh, that covers all aspects of economic life, doing business covers essentially just one aspect, which is business regulation. So how easy or difficult it is to comply with various aspects of business regulation. So we'll be looking at this uh, data over the last uh, uh, six, uh, six years. And then we're going to link it to actually a number of, uh, of uh, data on the political side, but uh, more specifically on uh, data on democracy, how democratic uh, the political uh, is the political regime in a given country from essentially the most popular uh, database called Polity4 that looks at these issues. And essentially what they look at is who is in power, for how long, how large is the majority, if you have 100% majority in uh, parliament, as let's say is the case in Kazakhstan, eh, probably you're not the most democratic country in, uh, in, uh, in the world. If, if, let's say, the president selects who is in parliament, that's probably not a very good, uh, uh, you know, feature of a democratic regime, and, uh, and so on. So we actually have a number of variables on democracy, but for speed, I'll just be showing you the main variable of, uh, of uh, democracy. And what I'll do first is, uh, so hopefully by now you've seen the Doing Business project, but Doing Business, as I mentioned, is much narrower than the economic freedom of the world that you just saw. And it looks at various areas, tens of areas of, uh, of uh, business regulation. For example, I'm showing you a picture from uh, Business Entry, and it asks the simple question, if I want to start a business, in this case in, uh, in uh, Hungary, how difficult or easy it is to do so. So what are the procedures that I have to go through by law? Uh, how much do I have to pay? Uh, and basically, how long is it going to take me? In some other areas, like labor regulation, we're looking at the specific text of the law and basically seeing how flexible or not it is to hire workers, fire workers, and so on. But this picture gives you, in some sense, uh, a snapshot of the methodology, saying that in the case of Hungary, in the past year or so, actually there was a reform, so it took about uh, six procedures before to start a very simple business with a small, think of a grocery store type of, um, of business, and it took about uh, 20 days to do so in, in uh, Budapest, the most advanced city. And thanks to some reform, you see that, uh, that since June of this, uh, of this uh, year, it now takes significantly fewer steps and significantly shorter time. And we have this kind of picture for every one of, by now, the 181 countries in the world. The upcoming report that we've just started working on would include uh, Libya as well, so there will be 182. Um, and then we have this for every year, for every country, for every type of topic. So if you want to know how to pay taxes, we have a picture like this. How to trade across borders, a picture like this. How to register property, a picture like this, and so on. So every year we basically put together these reforms uh, across all the countries and ask who are the top reformers by topic as well as on aggregate. 
So I'll show you quickly, uh, I'll spend just a minute on the latest one from the latest report that came out in uh, September, and then I'll quickly go through the previous four years just so that you see some patterns. So if you look at the latest one, so these are the 10 topics, and then the countries that uh, relatively to the rest of the world reformed the most, where tick means it, it got easier or cheaper or faster to do something. And if you just look at this picture, with the, with in, on your mind having the question that I ask, do democracies uh, reform uh, more or do autocracies reform more? Based on this picture, you can say, well, you know, there are some countries here that look a bit suspect. Azerbaijan is, uh, is one. Belarus, perhaps, most uh, striking on this, uh, on this list. You have Egypt. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of a mixed, uh, a mixed picture from this. Of course, I'm only showing you the top ten. I'm not showing you the whole list of uh, reforms, which is in the re report. But from this, you know, not quite clear in which direction it is. And actually, if you go year by year, so I'm going now down in the years, so the previous report, you see Egypt actually was the top reformer in the world two years ago. Um, you see some uh, Saudi Arabia is on this list, China is on this list, uh, as well as a number of countries from Eastern Europe. My own country, Bulgaria, made it, um, to the surprise of the government at that time. Um, and then if you go a year, a year further, you see Georgia was mentioned already as a top reformer and indeed has been, over the last six years, actually the main reformer uh, cumulatively in our, in our report. You see, however, China as well uh, here. So you see still a relatively uh, mixed, uh, mixed set of countries. And if you go further down, you see Vietnam, you see China as well. Um, if you go to the first report, you actually see a number of European countries, uh, uh, richer countries like Portugal, Spain, uh, and uh, so on. So just looking at the top ten, you cannot say, well, it's all basically non-democracies or it's all democracies. It's not quite, um, uh, quite clear. And if you, if you go through a picture of the world, this is from the latest uh, uh, report that just came out. Uh, so what we are showing here is well, maybe not country by country, but region by region to see whether there are some striking regional patterns. Uh, and actually, if you look back at the reports, you would see some striking regional patterns, which is that Eastern Europe, since we've started seven years ago, is the region that by far is reforming the fastest, meaning that uh, in some years every East European, and when I say Eastern Europe, also with Central Asia, also the whole former Soviet Union. So it's Bulgaria and Hungary, but it's also Tajikistan and Turkmenistan that are part of this, uh, uh, this picture. Basically every country in that region more or less is reforming in any given year. And this is very consistent across years. It's always been, since we've started six, seven years ago, the fastest reforming um, uh, uh, region. For the last year, you see uh, Latin America actually has the slowest reforming region. And actually, if you go back five years, that more or less has been the case. So Latin America in our index, not every year, but I think four out of the five years has been the slowest reforming uh, region in, uh, in uh, the world, with uh, the Middle East, uh, East Asia, and, uh, and Africa somewhere in the middle. And I'll show just one more picture before I go into my main uh, storyline, but to see this is from the previous, previous year. Again, you see Eastern Europe reforming uh, uh, the fastest and Latin America by a large margin reforming the slowest of any, of any region in the world. And if I showed you from the previous four reports, which I want, 
you would see Eastern Europe always number one, Latin America always last. Uh, and then depending on the year, the Middle East, South Asia, and East Asia sort of become second from, uh, from uh, the bottom. There is one trend over time, which is that, uh, that Africa started relatively low. And over time, especially in the last couple of years, has picked up. So the regional trends don't really tell you that much either in terms of the question that I'm asking, because if you look at um, the top reformers, Eastern Europe, as I mentioned, it has Central Europe, which by now are by and large quite uh, democratic countries on various indicators, but it also has Central Asia and the Caucasus, which are not really democratic countries on most uh, indicators. And then at the bottom you see Latin America that has sort of Bolivia and Venezuela, but also has a number of uh, very well-functioning democracies like, uh, like uh, Costa Rica, let's say. So from here then, what we do is just to say, okay, so what we're going to do now is with this data, we're going to divide it first by topics and then overall and adjust it. And we, by the way, will exclude the OECD countries, the rich countries, because by and large, they're all democracies by, uh, by now, so it doesn't really tell you that much. So we're only looking at non-OECD countries in the database. And we know how many reforms there have been in any, in any given year. This is just the percentage of reforms in any given year, which tells you people like reforming starting a business and paying taxes a lot. And nobody really likes reforming labor regulation because it's most difficult to, um, to reform or bankruptcy, which I think soon will be very necessary, but is otherwise a very difficult political uh, uh, reform. So we have this for every year, for every country and uh, overall. And what we are going to do now which is the last two slides, is a very simple exercise. We just say we're now going to divide the world into democracies above the median on, on various democratic values and non-democracies below the median and controlling for income per capita. So we are not comparing Norway to Burkina Faso. So controlling for income per capita, we'll basically want to see who's reforming more. And here's the picture by topic where the blue are basically the good guys, the uh, democracies, and the maroon is the non-democracies. And this only controls for income per capita. We've later done a lot of controls for, uh, for uh, where you are in terms of geography, for legal origin, for, um, uh, for religion, and so on. But this does not control for any of uh, this. And if you look at this picture, basically democracies always reform more than non-democracy, with the exception of protecting investors' index, where they are roughly similar. In fact, even there, there is, a, there is a difference, but it's not statistically significant. But basically, on every topic, it turns out uh, that controlling for income per capita, so given that you are at the same income level, if you're a democracy, you have a higher probability to, to reform. Which is an interesting result. It's not uh, necessarily, it's nice to know because it answers to some extent this question of who is reforming. Uh, are good guys reforming in all directions? And roughly speaking, the, the answer is yes. But also it's especially relevant for the first reason that I told you, that how easy it is to, if you like, undo reforms. And the answer is in democracy it's less easy because you need a lot of players basically to agree on a given policy and it's less likely for this to happen than if one person decides, okay, we did this, sort of it worked for a while, but now we are sort of uh, going away from it. And this is a picture it doesn't uh, uh, show. I tried to put all the country names for just to pick, pick some, but didn't quite, uh, uh, quite work. But it shows some countries that, uh, uh, like Turkey, for example, is considered 
by the standards of, uh, of its income per capita to be a democracy. And you see that it's an example of Lebanon. And these are countries that relative to their income per capita, and it turns out religion, geography, and so on, reform relatively fast. And on the other side, you have countries like Gabon, that relative to their income per capita uh, actually don't reform in this particular uh, case. So this just shows what I showed you before, but sort of on aggregate. And I'll finish with, uh, with this. Um, I talked a lot about the first point, which is that democracies seem to reform more than non-democracy, which is a small result, but useful to, um, to know in my uh, mind. The second one that I actually didn't talk much about, and maybe this can be in the uh, discussion because it's a very recent uh, result that we found, and we have different stories but haven't converged, is that not only democracies reform more, but the poorer the country or the poorer the income level, the more the democracy matters. So basically, if you're middle-income countries and you're comparing, democracies do quite, quite uh, well there. So sort of comparing Peru to... Um, to Venezuela, you know, Peru is reforming uh, more on these indicators. But if you get to really poor countries, the democracy, the democratic uh, uh, governments reform even faster than the non-democratic uh, uh, ones, which I find to be quite interesting. But unfortunately, I don't have a very good explanation for it yet, which is why I've said there. Why? So what is it? Is it that uh, donors perhaps have some... Um, positive influence in these countries. They certainly have more of an influence from what I've seen from the work of the World Bank. I wouldn't say that that's the main, um, the main driver for uh, reform. So I sort of am suspicious of donors uh, in that regard. But it's interesting to know why. And so far, we don't know. But hopefully next year, when we get invited, we would have uh, that answer too. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Simeon. Uh, we have time for questions and answers. Uh, if you have a question, please raise your hand and wait for the microphone to come to you and then identify yourself and uh, your question. We'll take a question right up front here in the seat. This gentleman, no, uh, right there. Right there, when you need to talk. Yeah. Thanks. Um, on this issue of uh, the correlation between democracy and economic freedom, uh, I was very interest, interested, uh, Mr. Jankoff, in the, and it's the first time I've seen uh, an analysis of the impact of democracy on economic freedom. We hear a good deal more about the other way round, and I wonder if anyone would like to comment, uh, particularly in light of the persistence of Hong Kong and Singapore to stay right up there at the top of the list on economic freedom and, and pretty much at the toward the lower half of the list on on democratic freedoms, uh, the theory we hear most often, of course, is that economic freedom uh, leads to prosperity, which you gentlemen have demonstrated magnificently, and that prosperity leads to greater education and a growing middle class, which in turn uh, encourages or perhaps even demands democratic, uh, democratic reforms. Uh, whether you subscribe to that theory or some other or think it simply doesn't help at all uh, for, uh, for um, um, growing prosperity to lead to uh, democratic reforms. I think this is particularly interested, interesting, rather, because China and Vietnam uh, uh, clearly are, are looking at these uh, issues. Yeah. Can I make just a... Yeah, I think... Go, go ahead, yeah. Speak, I right? speak in the microphone. You okay. 
I don't have to touch it. Okay. Well, I uh, think that there is a relationship between uh, economic freedom and moving toward political democracy. There has been some research in this area, and I think the best reading of the results it is it has not been uh, uh, definitive, but there is some evidence that countries that move toward economic freedom with the lag then have a tendency to move toward political democracy. Uh, I guess the, the the cases that we would think of, country cases, would be country like Chile, which made very substantial moves toward economic freedom, say, from 1975 through 1990 and indeed on up to the current time period, uh, but uh, beginning in the 90s moved toward more uh, political democracy as well, as well as, as I think, Taiwan, uh, South Korea would would be examples of countries that moved first toward economic freedom and and then toward uh, political freedom. And while the movement is not you know certainly one to one, that I think the best reading of the uh, evidence is that changes in economic freedom create a positive environment for uh, movements toward political democracy. I, I'm going to for the very rare instance, disagree a little bit with Jim. Um, not entirely. I'm actually working on a paper right now where I'm looking at this in, a, I think, a more systematic way than we've done in the past. And I started with that answer, but I've, I'm, I'm adjusting. And I'm, I'm seeing in the data quite a few more examples beyond Singapore and Hong Kong. Um, if you look at the oil-rich nations, they tend to score very well on our index, and they, tend, and they score very poorly, of course, on the political freedom measures that are out there. And uh, more subjectively, my although we saw pressures building in Taiwan and South Korea and Chile that ultimately led to moves towards political democracy, if you go to Singapore today, my reading of the situation there is that there's very little groundswell of uh, unrest with the political situation. They seem to be quite content with their uh, uh, their wealth and uh, and yet their absence of political freedom. So, uh, and I think it's also fair in the Middle East. Yes, there are some democracy uh, ad- activists and so on in these places, but they're, they're very very limited in number, and I, I just don't... Uh, I'm a little bit more skeptical of that than I was um, a year ago, even. Maybe just a quick uh, comment on why I'm excited about this, uh, the analysis that we're doing um, here. First, you're right that we can look at Hong Kong and Singapore and say, okay, well, these are good examples of countries that are not that uh, free and they yet they do well both on the Doing Business Index as well as on other indices. Of course, on the other side, you see Zimbabwe and, uh, and Venezuela at the bottom of their index, and actually they're also at the bottom of our index. So in some sense, they are clearly going to be at the top and at the bottom some outliers, and what we're trying to find out, well, on average, um, what it is. So there are clearly some uh, cases that are... Uh, uh, presenting us with, let's say, uh, interesting um, uh, questions. The reason that I'm interested in the research that we are doing here is that our data is so short-term. It's basically year-to-year and relatively small reform. We're not talking about price controls or opening up the economy to foreign investors. These are individually very small reforms. So you cannot argue that somehow these reforms have impacted the political system in the few years that we are taking into account. So it basically goes away from the general discussion in this literature. Is it economics first? Is it uh, it, uh, politics first? Because in some sense, there is no possible effect of I reformed business entry, and therefore we are changing the political system uh, tomorrow. So what we are seeing in these averages is truly for a short period of time, admittedly, 
democracies decide that they want to do on average more reforms in making it easier for the business environment than autocracies. Even though, and I also subscribe with the comments before, it's certainly easier for an autocracy to reform because if the president of an autocratic country or whoever the king decides to reform, they can do it very quickly. They don't have to have many discussions, convince many people, and so on. So to me what that tells, and this is why I talked about the two uh, tales of the distribution, is that so you probably get a few good autocrats or autocrats good in the sense that they care about economic outcomes and their countries reform. But on average, you get a, a lot more bad autocrats, if you like, that don't care about the economy or care about something else. So once you look at the averages, it turns out that autocracies actually are perhaps not so good for economic uh, outcomes, even though there are clearly some examples which have done marvelously in this, uh, in this period. Yes, right here on uh, up front. Uh, can you discuss, when you say democracies, you include them all. Some don't function very well. Uh, I, I'm John Utley with the American Conservative magazine. Uh, in particular, Hernando de Soto's first book, he said, the reason Latin American democracies don't function is because they use proportional representation in the electoral systems. Uh, can you expand a little? When you say democracies, there's so many that... How do you decide which... Uh, I mean, how can you group them all together, I guess, is the point. <laughs> I think it's a, a very good question and something that I've kind of agonized over. Uh, typically, uh, uh, people who've empirically investigated this issue have used either the Polity for which Simeon referred to, or the Freedom House data where you look at, at both uh, uh, their view of democracy and, and civil liberties, which is somewhat different. I mean, the civil liberties element of it is different than the, than the sort of democratic decision-making. But I, I've been troubled by sort of, 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 as I think about the role of government, uh, it's not just whether or not you're voting on various kinds of issues, but to thinking about whether or not uh, the political decision-making process treats people new with neutrality, is neutral with regard to individuals, or whether or not it, it plays favorites. It's discriminatory. Uh, and while we would often associate I think neutrality as being the the more important base mark, benchmark, that the sort of voting process doesn't really get into whether or not there are restrictions that essentially lead to kind of neutrality in terms of treatment of individuals. And secondly, about whether or not the political process is designed to promote majority rule, which is the usual kind of, of measure of democracy, or whether or not it is designed to promote agreement. That is to say that where you've got broad agreement uh, on a given topic. And, in fact, I even th think about this in the American kind of context. Uh, I guess my own view, and this may be a little bit of field even, either from your question, or, but I think it's related to your question. Uh, I'm sort of of the view that we need a third legislative branch in the United States. 
uh, and a third legislative branch, which uh, would require approval of the House and Senate and the second House I'm going to refer to, the House of of, uh, uh, Taxpayer Representatives, in which case people would be selected to that uh, House of Taxpayer Representatives on the basis of, of, of whether or not they're paying for government. Their vote, if you like, would be weighted. Uh, But the idea here is that you would essentially try to reconstruct or design government so that it would be an entity based upon agreement, that where people who are paying for government are not able to impose their will upon people who are not paying so much for it. But on the other hand, people who are not paying so much for it wouldn't be able to impose their uh, views up on the uh, uh, those who are in fact paying for it, but in any case, with regard to your general point, if there is diversity among democracies, and it's something that we be need to be sensitive to in terms of our um, empirical investigation of of this issue, I think it's a point well taken and one where that uh, we need to uh, uh, integrate alternative uh, the diversity within democracies into our empirical analysis. Take a question up here. Thank you very much. My name is Michael Maybach. I'm the president of a group called the European American Business Council. We have 75 U.S. and European companies, so we work across the ocean, if you will. All of these very useful metrics that you've given us are all verticals, in other words, nation states. But successful nations going forward uh, also should be measured, I think, anyway, in terms of what I would call horizontal government, that is government-to-government cooperation or collaboration. Uh, Friction-free Atlantic trade is the business we're trying to be in, for example. You can think of interoperability of digital uh, health records, for example. When you travel from the U.S. to Europe, does your health card, once it's digitized, plug into a hospital system, et cetera? And what's the impact of the euro, which is a currency collaboration among uh, 13 countries now? So are you? do you have any plans to to start to measure government-to-government collaboration, maybe starting with the European Union. Does the regulation, uh, regulatory schemes that come out of Brussels, does that help or hurt their competitiveness? Well, I, I can certainly address how we're beginning to deal with that within our, our index. Um, I think we're not at the point where we need to contemplate a, a euro-level index uh, rating. But in a number of areas, such as uh, trade, um, of course, within Europe, their tariffs are all zero now. Um, but outside of Europe, Europe vis-a-vis the rest of the world, we have tariffs. So it's a bit of a challenge for me to find uh, what France's tariff rate is now because as a matter of uh, law, France doesn't have a tariff rate. It's the EU that does. Same thing has become true with uh, monetary affairs. Um, but at some point in the future, it's going to be hard to treat the individual European nations as distinct policymaking entities in the same sense that we – you know, it would be, it's hard to do that for the United States. Um, there is a group in Italy that did a uh, sort of your, your EU-level uh, study uh, trying to do that for, with respect to our, our index. Um, in the other dimension, too, though, there's a lot of diversity within countries that uh, there's been a lot of activity in um, uh, China um, to do a, a sub-level, sub-national level policy measures uh, Argentina, Italy again, uh, India. So a number of countries have done this, um, trying to do it, uh, trying to see what the differences are. We have a North American Freedom Index that covers the na- United States, the states of the United States, the Canadian provinces, and the Mexican states now. Not not authored by Jim and me, but um, th- those things, that's, uh, that's the other side of the question is, is within the nation, too. There's a huge amount of diversity in some countries. 
particularly federalist countries. Um, and just a quick point on the European Union. We have looked in doing business was the effect of the European Union on reforms. And by and large, what we found so far is that if you're an accession country, it helps you a lot. So this is why Bulgaria, Romania, Macedonia, Croatia, so a lot of countries, Slovakia early on, were countries that uh, are here on the reform lists, in part because their governments wanted to reform, but in part because a lot of the difficult reforms that domestically would be politically difficult to explain, they would say, it's not us asking, it's Brussels asking, so uh, we need to basically do it. And since on average, something like 80% of the then-accession countries of the population wanted to join the European Union. You can put a lot of difficult reforms under that uh, uh, umbrella. And to some extent, we've seen uh, this positive effect uh, in some of the free trade agreements of the U.S. with uh, the Andean Pact countries, with some of the countries in Central America, where some similar things are happening in the sense of the government saying the local... the Colombian government, let's say, or the governments in some of the other countries, they are saying, well, these reforms are good for you anyhow, but they are part of the uh, reform process or the agreement process with the EU. And if you look at the agreement, actually there is nothing that says that this particular reform is needed. Same with the EU. Uh, so it was just that it's part of a political package that is very uh, interesting for the electorate and in the name of entering the EU or the free trade agreement, a number of good reforms that otherwise probably would have been difficult to uh, pass actually do um, pass. So in that regard, I would say that being part of uh, desired clubs, whether it's the European Union or something transatlantic that's being discussed or free trade agreements with um, uh, the U.S. so far has been un unambiguously positive in terms of the type of reforms we've seen. We'll take a question in the back, please. Oh, my name is Yang Lo Yun. I used to work for the World Bank until this May. Could I you speak up just a little bit, please? Um, I used to work for the World Bank until this May as a senior economist. I have a couple of questions for Mr. Uh, Jankov. You talked about the, your um, doing the business report, um, and when you are talking about the, the um, developing countries and your motivations of recognition from the world, they may not be the ultimate um, mo uh, best ult motivation, but it is a very good incentive. Uh, when I was working at the World Bank, they were wondering, they were even complaining that the uh, report is not quick enough, so then they don't get the uh, prompt recognition, as we, as others talked about, two years behind. But my question is that the uh, um, while you are uh, doing business uh, index is really great, but did you really study the? Uh, outcome of that reform in terms of the uh, economic performance. So that would be uh, um, very important because World Bank should go for the outcome orientation. Mm -hmm. Second is the um, you really showed the uh, relationship, um, at least correlation between the uh, um, reform index and the democracy. But I'm wondering whether you looked at the direction, um, what I mean is the causality, direction of the causality, in, each, in which direction it really led. Of course, that's what we have been talking about, the, uh, this classical question, whether economic freedom or economic development leads to political freedom or the other way around. So I'm Thank wondering you. whether you have had that one or you have that one as part of your agenda. And in terms thank, of thank you. We we have to keep the question short, please. Um, 
Thank you. So in terms of the first question on outcomes, uh, it's indeed uh, our project as well as the other projects that have been looking at these uh, measures ultimately want to know who is reforming, but also what does this lead to? And if it turns out that there is a lot of reform, but it doesn't lead to any any uh, economic, at least, impact, as well as social impact, then probably we're wasting our time. Um, on the doing business side, uh, since our indicators are relatively new, seven years basically of, uh, of, uh, of data, and also they represent a relatively narrow part of the overall environment, investment, climate, and, uh, and uh, so on, I would suggest that if you want to do studies of economic growth, investment growth, and so on, our indicator is perhaps not the best indicator to use. I would probably use the type of analysis that was just presented uh, before, first of all because it has longer time series, 30-plus years by now, but also because it has a number of, uh, of uh, areas that we do not cover, like sound money, which is clearly quite um, important. But what we have looked is at some partial measures. So if you reform business entry... Do you have more businesses start operations? So what's entrepreneurship, if you like, which is an intermediate measure in the sense that it doesn't get all the way to economic growth, but it gets you part way. Um, and there we and a number of other researchers generally have found quite positive impact on making it easier for businesses and then economic activity that starts to, uh, to exist that did not exist uh, uh, before and we've done some other partial measures like that on if you make it easier to register property what's the share of property that's actually formal gets registered as opposed to informal never gets registered so we've done some such uh, uh, research inspired by Hernando de Soto and, uh, and other people so there is some but on the broad issue I would actually refer to other indices not on um, doing business. And then to the causality, uh, it is an issue, and this is exactly why I said that I'm excited about this research, because in our case, we're looking at such small reforms that are happening year to year, that it's unlikely to say that, uh, uh, you know, business entry is now easier in Hungary, and therefore the government is changing tomorrow, because it somehow has affected the political um, uh, situation. So I think causality becomes an issue when you have a much larger set of economic uh, uh, outcomes and longer periods, so politics can, uh, can reflect it. But in our cases, what I would argue is this is a cleaner, although much smaller, exercise that says some of these uh, uh, things have been designed by governments with this or that type. Could I make just a brief comment about it, uh, that particular topic as well? Uh, we have done considerable analysis at looking at both the level of economic freedom, either average during a period or level at the beginning of a period, and then the change and how the change, for example, affects variables like economic growth over extended periods of time. And the interesting thing is we find that both level and change exert an impact on tending to increase economic growth. It's all We've actually done the same thing with regard to reductions in poverty. And we've found that those countries that have the largest increases in economic freedom also have the largest reductions in poverty. So the change, actually, if we're looking at causality, and a couple of people have actually used our data to uh, estimate what's called Granger causality, that is to say whether uh, you have changes in economic freedom leading to changes in growth, uh, and they have found that changes in economic freedom exert 
uh, Granger causality upon economic growth. And they've actually similar analysis have been done with regard to uh, uh, political variables. And in general, they've shown that the the changes in political freedom, if I can use that term, and there are different measures of that, but there is not this Granger causality relationship between changes in political freedom and changes in economic growth. So it is an important issue. There's a lot of there. It's an area of continuing research, but at at this point, I think the case is very strong. The changes in institutions more consistent with economic freedom do lead to an improvement in economic performance as measured by variables like growth and and, and reductions in poverty rates. We have time for at least uh, one more question, and we'll take it uh, up here in the front, please. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, this question would be uh, primarily oriented. You identify yourself. Sorry to. Good afternoon. My name is Todd Wiggins. I um, have a blog uh, online called Urban Revival Media, which primarily deals with small business growth topics. And I, the question is primarily oriented towards Mr. Jijankov uh, uh, regarding a recent um, presentation made by Mr. Zelik that I attended at the World Bank, in which he brought out uh, uh, presented many um, women-owned African-based businesses. And he talked a lot about, uh, with some other people that were there, ministers from various parts of the world, talked about women-owned businesses. Does doing business address gender issues and in, in changes in roles of, in, in small business ownership uh, across these uh, various countries, et cetera? Um, in fact, I was also at that uh, presentation uh, and uh, report that was being uh, presented uh, there, uh, which was called Doing Business in Africa for, for Women, was a joint venture between the Doing Business team and some other teams on, uh, in the World Bank, making to some extent this, uh, this point that what we are presenting here, both of these exercises, are you know averages for the country, but they don't show you how uh, small versus large businesses may be affected by a particular regulatory regime, men versus uh, women, and of course geography in this particular case is also not within the country also affected. But we have started uh, about a year and a half ago, the Doing Business Project started uh, gender-specific exercise, which is not yet part of the main report because we are still doing the research, that tries to ask, in some sense, two questions. The first question is how are women, both as employers but also as potential employees, affected by the various regulations and which regulations affect them the most? Um, in other words, if you, if you care about that uh, topic, which regulations should you focus on the most, basically, to, um, uh, to reform? And this study on Africa was, uh, uh, was the first one uh, in, that, uh, in that regard. Uh, and the second question, of course, is to, to find uh, just some more information about women-led businesses because, well, there is significant, I would say, amount of information in the U.S. on that topic and some of the European countries. Once you go beyond that, even among some other OECD countries uh, and certainly among developing countries, Africa and so on, remarkably little is known about small businesses and then women-led businesses. So we're trying to put together some information just to document uh, and there are some interesting things that we cannot yet explain, but, for example, in Rwanda by now, more than half of the small businesses are led by women. Neighboring Burundi, about 15%. So how do you explain, you know, they're the same country in terms of size, roughly speaking. They're both, you know, have very similar characteristics, but, you know, the ratio is 3 to 1. 
And you see this kind of ratios in a number of other places. And uh, you see it in a lot of Middle Eastern countries. You see it in uh, some of the uh, within India, some states within India, and so on. So we're trying to learn more about that. And in some sense, the question in both of these questions uh, kind of topics is what are the particular policy reforms that you want to do to help small businesses in particular and among these women. That's going to come out in the upcoming doing because it's a two-year program, so it wasn't in this year's report. It would be in next year's um, report. Thank you. Thanks, Simeon. And so you can see how fascinating so much uh, new research is coming out based on both of these reports. I'm afraid we've run out of time, but I want to thank all of you for joining us today, and I want to thank our, our speakers. Please join me in thanking them for their, all their work.